This is an ABC podcast. As a Pacific woman, how do you keep your culture alive? My whole sense of identity is actually very firmly on Banaba, even when I can't see it, even when I can't go there. I have such a strong sense of belonging. How do you carry on the traditions of your ancestors? The old man used to come and tell us stories and legends about our island. Some people, um, they just laugh at them and uh, they ridicule them, but really, these stories are very important. And how do your ancient and modern beliefs intertwine? Instead of rejecting, I am now more peaceful in my 50s, bringing the fusion of old spirituality with Christianity. Culture, language, beliefs, these are living things. As long as we nurture them, and never forget them. So how do we do that in a world so dominated by a Western way of life? I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about keeping our culture alive. We are into our third year of making the program and I have interviewed so many incredible women. One of the hardest things we have had to do each week is to edit down amazing interesting, poignant discussions to squeeze into our 30-minute schedule. So today I want to bring you stories from the cutting room floor, the longer conversations that we didn't always have time to play. Dr. Katerina Tewa lives in Canberra now, where she is a professor of Pacific Studies at the Australian National University. But she grew up on Viti Levu in Fiji. And even that was a long way from the lands of her ancestors. The Barnabans are a small community Micronesian community in Fiji that was displaced from their home island of Banaba in what is now Kiribati in 1945. So Banaba was occupied by the Japanese during World War II, and it was also an island that was mined heavily for phosphate by Australia, New Zealand, and Great Britain. So during World War II, the island was quite devastated by both mining and the war. And the company bought Rambi in Fiji, which was a freehold island for the Banabans and moved them there in 1945. Our people have been there since then and have had quite a tumultuous history in Fiji. You told me that traditionally back in Banaba, women had leadership roles. How did that change? Quite a lot changed during the displacement and especially after many of our elders passed away because they were sick or they were not used to the environmental conditions in Fiji. So a lot of knowledge and a lot of cultural protocols, unfortunately, left with these elders. And some of it had to do with gender relations and the ways in which protocols Leadership, political participation was shared amongst the genders. So my understanding, listening to our elders and also doing a lot of research, whatever exists currently about our people that was written mainly by Europeans, members of the colonial administration, missionaries and others who wrote about Banabans, my understanding was that women had more of a role to play in leadership prior to the phosphate mining and prior 
to the introduction of Christianity. Both of these two things changed our culture quite a lot, changed fundamental aspects of our culture. But for example, one of the ways in which we knew women had more representation and political participation was that they could speak in our meeting house. So in Kiribati, there's something called the Maniapa system, which is the meeting house. And the Maniapa system has also changed over time. But in most parts of Kiribati, women are either not allowed to speak or don't have very visible roles, at least not at the front. They're usually at the back and they're usually doing things behind the scenes, but they don't necessarily speak and represent their families or clans in the Maniapa. But Banaban women did. So that is a quite a big difference between Banaba and many of the other islands in Kiribati. And it was a very practical necessity for Banabans because we're quite a small people. So Banaba is only six square kilometers. So a very small island and you can't see any other island from Banaba. So if you stand on Banaba and turn around 360 degrees, you will not see another island on the horizon. So in one sense, it's quite isolated from other islands. So the ways in which culture developed on Banaba, there had to be a lot of balance in people's roles and sharing of resources, speaking and representing families and clans and things like that. And women certainly had an important role to play in that space. And women were also in charge of the access to fresh water on the island, which was also absolutely crucial and critical role on the island because there are only certain number of freshwater underground wells that used to be the only supply of fresh water for all the people. And so only women were allowed to go into the freshwater caves, collect the water, bring it up to the surface and distribute it to all the families. Those sorts of roles changed a lot under colonialism through the introduction of Christianity and the domestication of certain roles and certain activities that women were expected to do. And then on Fiji, these further became transformed. So there's actually a lot of confusion and conflict around what the actual cultural protocols are for some things on Rambi because of the loss of traditional, some traditional knowledge, because of some contestation around genealogies and people's different rights and roles. And then being in a new context where you're not indigenous to the land or to the place in the same way that you were indigenous to your home island where you could read the landscape, you could read the lay of the land, the trees, all the different plants and animals that exist on your home island. And then you're in a new environment and you've got to reconstruct your culture. That's what happened to Banabans in Fiji and Banabans have been navigating this, all of the changes, all of the different challenges that living on someone else's indigenous land bring up, even though it's a freehold land, but you know, we are not ancestral to that land. And being a minority culture in a in a country as complex as Fiji, many of these things changed the nature of Banaban culture. And what position do women now have? In many ways, women are still doing a lot of things that they used to that they have been doing for thousands of years in terms of ensuring children are cared for, looking after their families, often working 
working behind the scenes and doing all kinds of work that's far less visible than what men are doing. Before our Rambi Council of Leaders was disbanded, almost always the councillors that represented the villages were men. We had one woman councillor who, who passed away a few years ago, and it was quite a big deal when she was elected because people recognised that we hadn't had women's formal leadership and participation in a long time. For the most part, women are leading things in terms of churches, families, schools, cultural activities. We have an amazing group of women on Rambi who work with virgin coconut oil, who make their own coconut oil and transform it into all kinds of amazing products for the body and the hair for consumption. They work with all parts of the coconut tree and create some absolutely amazing and wonderful products. So women are very economically active, very socially, culturally active. But, you know, those tend to be the roles that are more expected of women all across the Pacific. You occupy those spaces and you ensure things are running well in those spaces, but you're not so visible in a political or representational sense for your people. Dr. Tewa and her family work hard to maintain their connection to Banaba. My younger sister is a medical doctor. She and myself and her daughter started a, a very small nonprofit organization called Fiery Canoe Foundation. We created in honor of our late elder sister, Teresia Tewa, mm-hmm. who used to describe herself as the Fiery Canoe. Wow. And the Fiery Canoe is a translation of our surname, Tewa, like the Wa is the canoe in Tewa. So we created a foundation in her honor to support Banaban communities in the areas of culture and heritage and performing arts. And that's another way we stay connected to our home island, constantly thinking about the various issues and needs amongst our people, knowing very well that we don't get a lot of government services and support and that our Rambi Council of Leaders is not fully functioning. So there's a lot of different needs amongst our people. But we believe that Banabans should lead their own development, their own future. We believe that they should choose and articulate their own priorities and issues. And as Banaban women, we want to support that because we are privileged and we've had access to good education and good opportunities, thanks to my father and mother who were so, so committed to education. So we created this foundation to continue to support Banabans on the ground in Rambi and also in Kiribati. It sounds like you work very hard to maintain your connection to your people and Kiribati. Does that drive to maintain your roots ever conflict with your lifestyle in 2023? Yes, I think it does sometimes. But I guess because I communicate with people so regularly, it doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. I guess I'm always thinking about about family. I'm always thinking about my cousins and their different needs. And it's it's my whole identity, I suppose, as a, as a person. I can't really separate myself out from, from that. So even though materially we're living a certain kind of life and lifestyle in Canberra, it's like my mind and my heart are always in Fiji, in Kiribati, with our people, with our family. And it's very deeply 
grounded. My whole sense of identity is actually very firmly on Banaba, even when I can't see it, even when I can't go there. I have such a strong sense of belonging to that rock in the middle of the Pacific. And I also feel a very strong sense of obligation to actually care for Banaba, to not forget Banaba, even though so many of us are displaced and far away from it. So my research, for example, has all been always been about tracking Banaba and what happened to Banaba through phosphate mining and agriculture, for example. So I will continue. I constantly think about Banaba. I think about where our land went through mining. And then I think about what remains on Banaba. And it's like my whole being is so well grounded in that rock in the middle of the Pacific that it doesn't matter where I am on the planet. That's where my heart and my soul and my grounding are. And I feel, you know, it's not like a theoretical kind of connection. Mm, um, I get it's you. just a, it's a very strong sense of I'm a custodian for that land. I can't ever forget it and I can't let others forget it either. And I do think this is one of the roles of Banaban women, many Micronesian women, many Pacific women, Melanesian women and Polynesian women, like we are the caretakers mm. of the land even when that land might be mined or dug up or destroyed or somebody's taken all the trees, which is what also happened on Banaba. If you, in order to fill your role as a Pacific woman, or in my case, as a Banaban woman, I have to continue to care for that land, even when it's gone. That's how I see my role. Dr. Katerina Tewa is a committed caretaker of the land that her people had to leave before she was born. You can hear more from her in our episode called How Do You Balance Being a Modern Pacific Woman from a Deeply Traditional Culture? This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. For as long as people have been on the planet, storytelling has been key to our survival. It's used to entertain and delight us, warn us of danger, and to keep us connected to our past. Dr. Rona Nadile is well-known retired civil servant in Milin Bay in Papua New Guinea. And when she was growing up, fishing, hunting, foraging, and playing in the bush and by the sea went hand-in-hand with traditional stories of the land. But she worries that these stories are no longer being shared with children. My father was a lay village pastor. And uh, my family, in a way, was uh, uh, brought into the church, uh, the missionary days. And so we grew up in that kind of environment. And so we didn't learn much about the culture things around us, but we grew up in it. And storytelling was part of our like favorite pastime. We used to burn a um, large piece of logs like in the evenings. And there were times, especially when we would burn the fire and then all the children would come lie around the fire and tell stories. What I realized later was that the stories and the legends were a form of elementary school or kindergarten where a character is taught through the stories and through the characters in the stories. We learn character building. We learn obedience. We learn doing chores in the house or in the village. So we fetch firewood or fetch water or go and wash dishes in the river or do all those kind of things. And then we go also uh, collecting tulips, green leafy vegetables in the bush or 
pineapple in the wild. Yeah, so that was a part of my life. And every morning we go down to the beach and uh, like we were taught not to, if we are paddling, you not to paddle too much, too far out because like we see the islands and then there's the horizon. And if we go too far, we are told that we might fall over. We might, canoe might fall over the, like a cliff is the, uh, the end of that uh, sea and uh, the horizon that, that and where the sun rises. So we would just go down the beach and watch the sun rise out of the horizon. Yeah, and then we have other little islands close by. And sometimes we paddle out there to also look for fish and see seashells. Yeah, so that was uh, my village life. One day uh, we went down the river, at the mouth of the river, and we fished there, and we caught a huge eel. And we got so frightened of it, so we tied a string fishing line on a coconut tree and trunk, and we ran away. We left it there and went to the house. And then in the night, a storm arose, and thunder and storm, and the grandmother got up and told my, my mother and my father and told him, wake the girls, wake the children up. What did they do today? And then they woke us up and we told them that we caught this eel and tied it on a coconut trunk down the river. So my big brother came with us at the time and he took us. We light, uh, we lit a coconut, a dry coconut leaf as, as uh, our torch and went down. And my big brother got a bush knife and he cut off the fishing line so that we freed the eel. And when we did that, the rain, when we went back to the house, the rain stopped and the storm stopped. And we were told that if we don't touch these big things here, their owners, future owners, they can come and attack us. And, and that's why we had a big storm. <laughs> so that's one of our... <laughs> what, what an amazing... What an, <laughs> your daughter Vexin said that you are a great storyteller. Now I can see why. I want to listen to you all day. <laughs> but uh, be- beautiful, uh, beautiful childhood memories. How important, you know, despite the busyness of the world, young children, maybe your boo-boos, may not have sort of the similar type of childhood experiences that you just shared with us. Now, how important it is, is it to keep telling these stories to your children and grandchildren? It is very important, like I said. Uh, when I went first went to school, it's a Quattro mission, Missionary School on my island, and the school came after the World War II and after 10 years when the school returned. And we used to play at the beach, making castles and all sorts of play things and uh, you know, later on, when I think about it, they were the things that we did in the village that was different, but it was the learning experiences. Kindergarten was learning experiences. But today, this storytelling is missing. It's missing in the schools, missing in the families. And uh, when I went to school, the old men used to come and tell us stories and legends about our island and the chiefs and the sorcerers and the witches, and they would tell us who was there and who was, why in the rock is there and why and there's a hole in the rock or why there's, there was a, two, two piles of rocks. They were building to, towards uh, Samurai Island to join our island to Samurai. And then someone disturbed them and they stopped and they did the building. So every story they tell, there's some evidence of something that they would tell us about. And part of it is to warn us to behave ourselves. Some people, um, they just laugh at them and uh, they ridicule them. But really, these stories are very important. 
is listening and being obedient and following instructions and whether good or bad, we learn these things from the legends that we, we tell. Do you have grandchildren, your boo-boos, and do you tell them these stories as well? I have only one, like, grandson who is schooling in Australia as well. So when children are removed from their environment, they go to school or they live in some other place, then they miss out on some of these things. So when my grandson comes home, I tell him stories. I tell him stories and also um, any one of the other children, my my brother's children, my sister's children, then we find some time to tell stories. And especially at Christmas time when we are together, Christmas, our families come home, and that's when we can spend some time to tell stories with the children. That's wonderful to hear. I am from Western Islands, and my mom is mm-hmm. from Enga province, and there's we call it story tumbuna or you know yes. legends yes. from different from yes. tribe to tribe but basically mm-hmm. it's about our earth how we live in harmony with the land and so forth um yes. traditional stories different from one tribe to another in Milan Bay yes that's correct they're different and uh, also anything that comes out of the tribe or the clan you don't go and use some other people's magic things if they say you, you take this leaf or you take that you, this is good for you We don't because you don't know whether it's good or bad. Sometimes they tell you to take it and then evil spirit is in that in that particular plant or whatever. Yeah, so we be careful also about using other people's things. It's safe to use your own. That kind of cultural respect and honor we give to our ancestors. That was Dr. Rona Nadile from Milan Bay in Papua New Guinea. You can hear more from her in our episode called Meet the Women Keeping the Ancient Art of Pacific Storytelling Alive. When Christian missionaries arrived on our shores in the 19th century, and for decades after that, many of us were encouraged, sometimes forcefully, to forget our old gods and embrace the new Christian ways. Now many of us practice Christianity and worship Jesus, but we also maintain a connection to our traditional forms of spirituality. It is a theme explored by award-winning novelist and poet Sia Figel. Sia has published five novels as well as poetry anthologies, and she expresses strong spiritual themes in her writing. We are all raised in Christianity, but there was also the undercurrent of the land and of the sea and of the birds, stones. And I learned this not only from my aunt who made Samoan oil, and she was very careful about taboos of where to go, what plants to get her leaves from, which part of the island not to go to because there are ghosts. It really didn't happen for me until I was living in Germany. And that was 30 years ago. And I came across writings of people like Stair, missionaries, and also the ethnography of Samoa, the new knowledge that I had learned about pre-colonial worshipping shocked me at just how powerful it was that we had this spirituality that was so present before Christianity. And Sia, why did you struggle so much with Christianity after you learned about Samoa's traditional spiritual realm? 
after discovering that knowledge of, of Samoans as polytheistic, which basically means we were pagans and we worshipped many gods. The national god is Tangaloalangi. And then each family had a family god. So these family gods could be a stone or a fish or the owl or the turtle or a shark or a mountain. When infants are born, they are given a god, which is the family god. It led to this struggle with Christianity, with this one god. I was asking myself, well, what should I choose? I cannot actually refute Christianity because I was raised that way. But in my 20s, I definitely denied it. But now, as you get older, I realize that if Samoans were polytheistic, then what is Christianity but another God? Instead of rejecting, I am now more peaceful at a, in my 50s, bringing the fusion of old spirituality with Christianity. For me, it's the messengers that did cruel and brutal things to our indigenous cultures, not Jesus Christ. In your novel, The Girl in the Moon Circle, yes. you talk about the female spirits. What do they mean to someone women? These female aitus, female spirits, two of the most powerful and feared were, and I can't even repeat their names because there was such a taboo attached to it. And these women, they would take young, beautiful men, manaya, or if they were really jealous of a beautiful Samoan, Taupo, Tausala, you would see marks on their faces, or especially someone with long hair. The, the spiritualism involving Aitu or gods or goddesses, it, it brings a lot of fear to all of us. For instance, my mother was deemed possessed by a Fijian chief. She was Fa'alautatau, and this is back in the early 70s. My mother was possessed, and yes, they seeked the pastor at first, but then they knew that the only way for her to be healed would be to bring a taulasea. Uh, a fofo, uh, like an indigenous, I would call it healer, someone who had the medicine to uh, exercise the spirits. Mm -hmm. So from the experience of seeing that, of seeing my mother, I mean, our whole village knew that my mother was possessed. And we were very young when that happened. Wow. And I tell you, I mean, even now, I am still quite traumatized by that experience of witnessing my mother in the middle of the house. She was naked and in front of her brothers, everyone trying to put her down because she was so strong and so powerful. She would just yank people. She, I mean, her strength was... was uh, still in the mind of like me of six, seven year old, but witnessing that 
is, I tell you, it's a traumatizing experience for any child. This is very real in Samoan possessions. So the spiritual world is very much part of our world. I am so humbled that Sia Figel has shared a very personal story with us. You can hear more stories of spirituality in our episode called Pacific Women and the Spirit World. Thanks to all my guests today, Sia, Dr. Rona Nadile, and Dr. Katerina Tewa. I'm so glad we got to revisit these important conversations. If you've missed an episode of the show, catch up on our podcast. You can listen on the ABC Pacific website or on your favorite podcast app. If you've got a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message anytime at the ABC Pacific Facebook page or email sisters at abc.net.au. That is S-I-S-T-A-S at abc.net.au. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, how comfortable are you talking to your children about sex and puberty? Instead of being judgmental, it would be more helpful if we provide like directions or advice because like the older generation has gone through that and have more experience than young girls. It might feel awkward or taboo, but teaching our children about their changing bodies is so important. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is presented and produced by me, Hilda Wayne. Our supervising producer is Kim Lester. Executive producer is Inga Stunsner. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. I'm Tasol Nabungimu next time.